I'm Stephanie Evans, the principal here at Catholic Ladies College, and welcome to our podcast, Raising Resilience. This podcast series has been created to support you on your parenting and caregiver journey, with new episodes coming out every month. It will give you access to the best insights, information, and tips for navigating important issues. I'll now hand you over to your hosts, Liana, CLC's Head of Students, and Brett, CLC's School Counselor. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of our podcast, Raising Resilience. I'm one of your hosts, Liana, CLC's Head of Students. And I'm Brad, the School Counselor. So, Brad, we are talking about body image and eating disorders on today's episode, but I'm really excited because we're changing things up a little bit today. We do. We have a little bit of a special guest. Our school psychologist, Olivia Smith. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. So for our folks at home, Olivia works really closely in our uh, student services department. She's one of our school psychologists working alongside yourself, Brad. Correct. Can you just talk a little bit about what your role is at CLC? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a mix. So much like Brad, um, I do do some counselling work with our students, but as a psychologist as well, I also have a bit of a role around educational assessment and that sort of thing, as well as working more broadly with our teams on some proactive initiatives. Where Really excited that you're here to talk to us today about this topic because would you say this is sort of like your field of expertise, body imaging? Yeah, look, it's definitely an area of interest for me and one that I've done some more kind of training and things in. Um, And in previous workplace, I did some work privately with families in this space as well. Fantastic. So we're going to get a really good source of knowledge and um, expertise today. Yeah, so today we'll kind of really break it down in a way where we'll examine the different types of eating disorders. Um, We'll look at through the lens of behavioural, psychological, social, emotional, basically looking at all these impacts and really effectively understanding what are the signs we need to look out for and then really go into, I suppose, looking how parents will support their kids, obviously experiencing this type of debilitating illness at times. So we'll obviously get the expertise of Olivia (laughs) and uh, really nut it out and understand, um, I suppose, what parents can do moving forward. So Olivia, could you give us a little bit of context, I guess, around um, eating disorders and what they are? So I think one sort of myth that is out there is that they're a very rare thing. So we actually know eating disorders affect approximately 9% of the population. So that's a fair few. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think also we, we have a very sort of stereotyped idea of anorexia and that you have to be underweight to have an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, and that is 100% not true. Most people who have an eating disorder are in fact of, of normal weight or in a bigger body. So I think that's very important to be aware of, first of all. But eating disorders is basically... I guess there's a disturbance in body image and it's something that's really having a negative impact um, mm. on an individual yeah. and to the point where it's affecting their life more broadly and they're taking some sort of steps to try and handle that. So be it um, changes to their eating patterns, exercise patterns and so on, as well as what we call compensatory behaviours. So that's around taking behaviours to sort of undo the action of eating, if that makes sense. So that could be compulsive exercise. It could be, you know, things like self-induced vomiting. It's sort of different manifestations of that. But overall, we know these are really dangerous illnesses and really serious and they're not like a lifestyle choice or a bad or anything like that Um, and they need to be really treated seriously. And I guess we want to try and dispel some of these myths today as well. So, yeah, this information is really important. I guess, Olivia, something that I notice especially dealing with young women, uh, parents of young women 
struggle, I guess, to notice this, the signs and symptoms, yep. but also don't know sort of when to intervene. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and don't sort of know what their role is and, yeah. and how far do they push. So could you give our folks at home some guidance or some supports around what they should do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really tricky space because as a society, we have a lot of normalization of like dieting yeah. and that sort of stuff. And we have a lot of weight bias in our culture. And so I think often parents can miss the signs because they think, oh, you know, my daughter's on a diet, but she just wants to be healthy. We in fact actually know, unfortunately, that dieting is one of the number one predictors of developing an eating disorder. So yep. there's no really no um, safe limit to a teen engaging in dieting behaviour or, or losing weight or anything like that. I think one other big thing that can sort of go under the radar because eating disorders are so secretive is that often a young person will suddenly start showing an interest in cooking or food preparation mm. and that sort of thing. And a parent can think, oh, great, my, you know, they're finally getting they're more helping, independent, yeah. they're helping out, um, <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. And, yeah, so, again, it can be like, oh, that's a positive. And so they might miss sort of what the intention is underneath it. Because would you say like noticing suddenly that they're cutting something out of their diet that maybe they used to really love or even reducing their portion sizes, yep. is that a sign to yeah, worry? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess if we're dropping, you know, kind of whole food groups and yeah. things like that, particularly if they're sort of choosing to, to eat alone as well. Mm. So um, I guess we know the food plays a big part in our social lives and so they might start to avoid some of those social situations in which eating sort of expected, if that makes sense. And I guess some other things we might notice as well can be, I guess, and again, it's hard because a lot of these things happen typically in teens, but yeah. if they're more anxious, more moody, they're more fatigued, um, all those sort of factors can be a possible warning sign. Yeah, it's tricky because, again, some of these things you, you don't notice and, you know, it can be, you know, changes to their periods and that as well, which is hard because often they don't share that with their parents. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess also it's hard for, as a parent, it's a really fine line, the balance between, is my child just going through puberty and, and yep. changes to their body that's natural? And with that comes some weight gain. There might be weight fluctuation. So it's hard to know oh, is there, uh, you know, a problem here yeah. or a concern that I need to worry yeah. about? And if it's not explicitly had in terms of the conversation with parents, yep. obviously it's a really kind of convoluted area of deciding on the symptoms and knowing yep. what to look for. Yeah, I suppose just within like personal experience of when I have worked with, you know, students who have talked about disordered eating to an extent, and really kind of looking at, you can see physical symptoms and it, when they talk about it, all the signs kind of match up. But without that critical information for parents, it makes deciding on how to move forward and what that conversation will look like really, really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think I've had the experience multiple times where I have an initial session with a student and I just bring up some questions around eating and exercise. And often that's not the reason they've come to see me. It's yeah. because of anxiety or sleep or something yeah. like that. And then sort of all this stuff comes out. There's so, lots of layers yeah, underneath. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it can be really challenging, I think, but it's important conversations to have for sure. And I think the hardest thing with disordered eating is that we know a malnourished brain can't really work rationally. So often they will insist until they're blue in the face that, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. And that's, I think, what differentiates it a little bit perhaps from low mood or anxiety because there's not that recognition that there is necessarily a problem. In terms of a psychological impact, Olivia, what do you see in terms of what typically presents? So obviously if there's that undertone of 
you know, disordered eating there. How do you notice it manifests in terms of what presents in session? Yeah, so I think we can often see just that they're a little bit flatter, I yeah. guess, kind of in their presentation. We do see sometimes as well a change in dress. Yeah, so okay. suddenly wearing kind of more baggy clothing. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And parents often, yeah, will comment on that as well. I know a lot of them have the kind of the hoods around their head yeah. and that's a real sort of yeah. and staying in, And staying in sort of like big padded clothing yep. or winter clothing during summer Correct. as well 100%. is a big yep. red flag. Yep. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's just looking at as well, if everything, it's sort of the function or the motivation really. So obviously yeah. exercise is a really important part of life and can be great for mental health, but it's are they doing it because they feel like they have to do it and there's no enjoyment there yeah. for them? Um, will they still like do it if chore. they're sick? Yeah, yeah. it's sort of like almost a, a punishment or something I have to do to be allowed to eat yeah. um, and that suggests that that exercise is is compulsive and it's not for a, a good purpose, I guess. And I think this is just something that kind of really comes up when you do work around with these types of clients and students, the nature of the deeply embedded thought patterns that mm. develop as a result of this behaviour yep. are really hard to unpack 100%. and take a lot of time. And I think Having the right mix of people involved in terms of support and recovery is probably one of the most crucial parts of the process. Yeah, 100%. And so we sort of know that renourishment and weight restoration is really going to be the prerequisite because they're not able to engage in that high level of kind of therapeutic reflection and things like that when their yeah. brain is starved. So often we talk about that the weight restoration happens first and then we can kind of delve into the more therapeutic aspects yeah. of yeah. it because yeah. they're just not in a space to be able no. to engage in it otherwise. Yeah. It's about no. getting healthy physically yeah. before yeah. you can then fuel your brain. 100%. Olivia, would you say that, I guess I want to talk a little bit about eating disorders and control Yes, because a lot of people talk about uh, when someone has an eating disorder, they're seeking some kind of control in their life. So yep. I guess from an educative viewpoint, I see a lot of eating disorders sort of start as students get further up in their education mm -hmm. and as they're approaching sort of senior years of study mm -hmm. because things are getting really stressful or maybe there is a, you know, there's been a stressful traumatic experience in their life where they've lost something. So I guess what I want to know is, is it true that control is heavily associated with having an eating disorder? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because eating disorders are serving some sort of functional purpose for a young person. Mm. Um, and I think we particularly saw that massive uptick in COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that was around that basically everything in my world is completely out of my control. And this is like one thing I can actually control. Yeah. So yeah, we, we, there is that sort of stereotypical personality often of, um, you know, the high achiever or the sort of perfectionistic kind of student. Mm. It's not necessarily that personality type, but we do know they're a bit more vulnerable to that. And yeah, it's often just just, you know, wanting to have something that I can manage and feel like it's within my control. And often that's in the context of there might be things going on at home in terms of external stresses or also school and things like that as well. So it's just some, a way of kind of trying to maintain some sense of order yeah. <laughs> um, yep. over their life. Yeah. Um, and we know it's it's hard because there's so much going on in their lives. So that's sort of the one mainstay sometimes yep. they can rely on. What would you say are the kind of, I suppose, signs for parents to look out for at home in terms of someone who is battling with, you know, disordered eating or an eating disorder, really kind of how would that present and what would be the typical or, you know, common things associated in terms of the signs that show up 
at home? Yeah, so I think um, sort of as was touched on changes in their eating habits, so explicitly going on a diet or just sort of suddenly excluding food groups. So I know one young person I worked with, she had become a keto vegan. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, that's- I didn't even know that was a category. <laughs> so that leaves very few, you know, foods really. But again, you know, her mum was doing the keto diet with her. Yeah. And so, again, you know, we can have this thing that parents, unfortunately, they don't mean to, but they're inadvertently sort of reinforcing this behaviour yeah. through their own sort of choices and things like that. And, again, it goes back to that normalisation that we have of dieting yeah. in our culture, yeah. um, which is huge. So, But, yeah, beyond that, I think, you know, sometimes there can be evidence of binging, and I guess by that I mean, you know, lots of sort of packets of foods and things in the bin. It could be that they're going to the bathroom a lot during or after meals Mm -hmm. as well. As we sort of said, also a bit of dizziness and fainting, like, you know, those sort of um, symptoms and things like that. It looks different for different people, but those can be some of those warning signs. In that case that obviously parents are starting to see signs that are kind of potentially popping up red flags, Hmm. what would you suggest that they typically do in the event that they do have concerns? What would they do? Yeah, and it's a tough space because, as we sort of said, People, eating disorders will get young people to deny their existence, basically. They're very, very powerful. So I think what is really important is initially having that sort of engagement with the GP. And I think it's really important it's the right GP because, again, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there amongst GPs where some of them think, oh, their BMI is in their health free range. They're Mm -hmm. fine. Or I can think of a horrific example of a young person I worked with who she had atypical anorexia, so that's basically anorexia but not being underweight. Okay. Um, she actually went to see the GP and even though I explicitly said, you know, please do not weigh her or discuss weight, they told her, oh, you need to lose weight because you're overweight. So, oh. you know, some of these things can be really damaging yeah. and so I think... There's a lot of judgment too, yeah. <laughs> that's it. So yeah. I think it's really important to have a GP that is you know, quite experienced in working with young people. Yep. Um, for example, often the headspace centres do have GPs that work with youth. Oh, that's so, good to okay. know. For example. Yeah. But I guess yeah, having a GP that, that they feel comfortable with I think is really important. Yeah. And giving and your, establishing that relationship. Yeah, yeah. and giving a young person some time in the room themselves as well yeah. without their parents there because they're often a bit more likely to be a bit more forthcoming yeah. and open. Because as you said, <laughs> they're going to deny it because yeah. the voice yeah. in their head is so loud and overpowering that, yeah. 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 And you don't know what they haven't potentially said to parents. So, Mm. you know, in the event, obviously sitting down with a GP and disclosing these types of details, you're also trying to cater to the reaction of your parents, potentially Mm. hearing stuff that this is the first time they're being exposed to as well. That is quite private and secretive. Absolutely. And so, and we want a GP to be very thorough in their assessments. So they're not just weighing them, but they're looking at things like their blood pressure, um, their heart rate, that sort of thing as well, and some bloods and things like that. But I think another step can also be at our school level, I guess, sometimes having an initial session with a school counsellor, you know, yep. if a young person's willing to do so, that can sometimes be a pathway as well into that. And act- it's that help-seeking behaviour that kind of gives you a standing point to work from as well because obviously having or talking about something that is so private, that is so personal, is extremely difficult. So, you know, if they are willing to open up, we kind of have to embrace it and really wrap ourselves around that level of support. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a really good tool that is sort of publicly available is a website that's called Feed Your Instincts Mm, for parents that I put Brad onto. Yeah, Um, I can't stop using it. (laughs) (laughs) And basically it's just a checklist for if parents just have a little inkling like, oh, something I'm not quite sure about this, but am I making a big deal out of nothing, they can actually – 
tick, a, you know, it's a variety of kind of boxes yeah. they can tick and it will then give them sort of immediate feedback on what Fantastic. the issue is. Yep. And it can also produce like a PDF report to take to the yeah. GP. Um, yep. So that's a really great tool kind that's of, freely available. Uh, not having to repeat yourself, like obviously going to a GP, there's a lot of really kind of fundamental information mm. that, you know, going in and having that mm. initial conversation is difficult in itself. So if you've already got a little you've bit done of the groundwork, yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I am always sort of the attitude, I'd rather operate from an abundance of caution rather yes. than dismiss something. Yeah. Because, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, you know, consequences of that are significant if yeah. we, we miss something. So yeah. I'd much rather be overly cautious. <laughs> yeah. Olivia, I know there's a lot of great organisations um, out there that offer some great supports. Could you touch on a couple that you um, would recommend to families? Yeah, absolutely. So Eating Disorders Victoria is absolutely excellent. I've had done some training and things with them um, and they have a lot of good services available. So they have like just like a, a call line that parents can just call and talk to somebody um, about their concerns, but they also have what we call some carer coaching services. So helping carers um, have some individual sessions with someone, a professional to kind of help them understand better how to support their loved one. And that can be while you're also sometimes on a wait list for another service, that can be a good interim sort of measure as well. The Butterfly Foundation as well has some really great resources for families. And I guess the last one is Eating Disorders Families Australia, um, which again is focused on that care level of support because we know it's really hard work for carers. Yeah. Yeah, It's a a family family illness essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Butterfly Foundation has done some great work as well coming into our school and educating our young people. And I know they do a lot for Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which is in September. So they've got great resources Mm. and information on their website. And I think there's a lot of really kind of helpful resources in the sense that there's free webinars that you can actually sit in, you just register for and be a part of, and parents have access to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to think also more broadly um, for parents who perhaps don't have a child who's experiencing disordered eating at the moment, but Mm. like what can they do to, you know, try and prevent that, yeah, I guess, developing. rather than reacting. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, and again, this is a bit of a shift in how we work as a society, but to really try and encourage our young people to focus on the function of their body, the fact yeah. that it allows them to do the things that they love to do. Yeah. So yeah. rather than that focus on appearance, it's like, oh, your body means that you can do your dancing or, yeah, you know, yeah. you're swimming or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's um, a huge cultural shift. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And I think we know families eating meals together is actually a good protective factor. Yes. Um, That can be quite rare, unfortunately, these days, but it can be a really nice opportunity for families to connect anyway about their day and things like that. Liv, just from your personal experience and obviously the clients that you have worked with, what would you say are the biggest barriers for children actually and families seeking out this type of support? I think, unfortunately, in the post sort of COVID era, we've had massive demand for services. So mm. sometimes there is that just that challenge of the wait list and that sort of thing. There's that part. And then yeah. also, unfortunately, professionals, as we sort of touched on, who unfortunately not very well informed. Yeah. So be that GPs and it can be psychologists as well. Yeah. I've went to some psychologists who it's quite a niche area and sometimes they can sort of be unhelpful unintentionally by yeah, not kind okay. of realising it. There is a lot of development around what we call people being a credential eating disorder clinician, which means they've sort of done a minimum standard of training and things like that. So there is a website called Connect ED where families can actually find a professional who has done that extra level of training and sort of been vetted, which is good because, as I said, there's a lot of misunderstanding even in the sort of allied health community about eating disorders. So. Yeah, I think hearing, obviously, Olivia and the wealth of experience that she's kind of brought to this episode, you know, it's very clear that it is a very debilitating experience 
for someone going through that. And for their family, Absolutely. I would say, yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to reiterate the level of support needed to help that recovery process. Because the recovery also is quite long. Yeah. You yeah. know, I've seen yeah. it. I've seen it with lots of families that, you know, you might recover physically from an eating disorder, but you touched on it earlier, Olivia, that it's the recovery mentally. Yeah, it's yeah. longer term. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that, you know, that can have huge impacts. And I think, you know, I just want to say, you know, a big thank you to you, Liv, today um, for really kind of contributing your wealth of knowledge and mm. I suppose hopefully informing parents of uh, potential pathways for support and, you know, even just asking the right questions and having conversations. Absolutely. And I guess I just really want to reiterate um, that it's really important that we try not put judgment on eating. Um, yeah. I, I think it's just so common. We, we see this at every morning tea or whatever. Someone's like, oh, I'll be good and I won't have a piece yeah. of cake. Yeah. It's nothing. There's no moral qualities to food. Yeah. Um, so we really need to try and shift away from that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I think as well, like just as much as we can, don't talk about weight and dieting in front of our young people. Yeah. Um, it has more of an effect than we realise. So I think really try to be a role model as well in terms of how we kind of our relationship with eating and food and exercise. Yeah, so exactly right. That's really important as well. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Olivia, for coming on well, our thank podcast you for today. Me. I feel like we've all learnt a bit from today. I definitely have. So who knows, you might come on again if we <laughs> squeeze your arm. But if you have any more questions, um, you can definitely contact uh, Brad or Olivia on their school emails. If you've got a question about uh, signs or knowing how to uh, support your child uh, with something that they're going through. Just wanted to finish up by saying that if you have any suggestions or anything that you'd like Brad and I to touch on, discuss, or maybe feature in one of our future episodes, you can email me via my school email and we will definitely take your feedback and suggestions on. Absolutely. So thanks for listening and we will be back soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raising Resilience with Catholic Ladies College. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow on your podcast player to receive future episodes. Let us know what you think by leaving a review. And just a reminder, if you need additional support for yourself or your child, you can contact our wellbeing team here at CLC, your child's homeroom teacher or the year level team leader.